Thanks for being with us today. Well, there has been a lot of talk about the Vancouver Aquarium because the aquarium has come out and saying, uh, come out saying if they don't get financial help soon, as in immediately, there is likely only enough funding to go ahead for maybe another couple of months. And at that point, they might be forced to shut the doors permanently. Well, we had already planned on talking to my next guest before we were uh, even talking about that story, instead talking about potential plans for the last dolphin currently at the Vancouver Aquarium. V. Victoria Schroff joins me now. She's an animal law lawyer with Schroff and Associates. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure, Jill. Uh, we were going to talk about, and we will talk about Helen, the lone dolphin at the aquarium. Uh, but what is your reaction as well, hearing that uh, the aquarium saying today, if it doesn't get emergency funding, it might have to permanently close? Well, for me, I have never believed in the public display of animals for as entertainers and for profit. So I was never on board with that side of things for zoos and aquariums. So if there's a new model that they can come up with where it doesn't include the display and um, uh, using of animals for profit, I think that's, that would be a good way for the, them to reinvent themselves. So it's an opportunity. Isn't that the whole point of an aquarium, though, that people go in there to see the animals? Um, Well, I think that's part of it. But I think that they can also, if they really do want to go down the educational route, there are different ways of handling it without the use of live animals. Are there other places? I know we've talked about other places in the past that have been have done it, at least without cetaceans. Are there other places that do that? Um, I'm not entirely clear um, how they do that, but they're with there, I understand that they're using a lot more augmented reality, virtual reality type programs, and a lot of these other um, aquarium and animal exhibit places have transferred themselves more into amusement parks and other things. So they still they still become an attraction. I understand the need for bringing in people and so forth, but um, I don't support the keeping of animals in um, tiny tanks and cages, especially. Um, you know, animals that are used to being free and and going hundreds of kilometers in a week. And it seems even just looking anecdotally at some of the responses to the story of the potential bankruptcy today, it seems unless it's it's only people of that mindset responding to that, it does seem like there's been a bit of a shift or that there are more people reconsidering that and, and that would agree with you. Uh, we were going to, we were planning to talk to you today anyway, because uh, you had uh, brought up uh, a point with us about Helen, the lone dolphin at the aquarium. Uh, so we do want to talk about that. What are some of your concerns? Because we know that the, the aquarium has been looking for a new home for Helen. What are your concerns about that? So my concern is that I have learned through my sources that Helen has, um, is is probably going to be sold to to um, San Antonio, Texas, to an aquarium down there. Um, it's called SeaWorld. And um, so my concern is for Helen's well-being. Uh, she's a senior dolphin. She's lived in captivity for a very long time. She's had both of her pectoral flippers amputated because when she was found off the coast of Japan, she was entangled in a fishing net. And so she's already suffered a great deal. And the purpose of her going to San Antonio, Texas at SeaWorld is to um, for the purpose of public display. I actually have a letter written by um, OceanWise's CEO saying, and that's the reline in a letter dated August 2019, talking about this in um, support of an application for a permit of transfer. 
and sale to um, Americans. And at this point, I mean, I guess with the with the question of Helen, people would look at that and think, well, wouldn't that be better than her staying here and being the only dolphin, being a social animal and being alone? Or what What do you think? Would, would it be worse, do you think, for her to go to the, the SeaWorld in San Antonio? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's um, a great idea to shift uh, a very senior dolphin hundreds and hundreds of miles. I mean, she has to go by truck and by plane and so forth. And I'd be really concerned with that. But at the same time, I I do agree with the fact that um, dolphins are incredibly social and they do need to be with other like animals. And um, she's been alone. Helen's been alone for about three years. So it's uh, it's been really hard for her. Um, But then now to say, okay, now that you're in your senior years, we're going to move you to an environment where you're back on public display as an entertainer for profit. I can't, I can't condone that as a great move. I mean, maybe, maybe there's no other alternative. I don't know. What I would like to find out is if the aquarium has done all it can to see if there's not a better alternative for her. Is there any way she could be a candidate for one of the um, sanctuaries that we have um, starting up? There's going to be one starting up in Halifax. Um, and to say that she could be um, released there. I don't know if she can safely be released to that, but I'm not a marine biologist. I'm an animal lawyer. I, and I think there's even some that would say that, that looking at the idea of a sanctuary, uh, even if it wasn't her best shot, it would be a better option or give her at least that opportunity rather than, like you say, being put in another tank in another aquarium to be put on show. Exactly. And I mean, SeaWorld has been criticized in the past for its tiny tanks. And I don't know about the compatibility that she's going to have with these new cellmates or tank mates. Um, You know, again, I start with the premise that dolphins, whales, porpoises, all of these marine mammals don't belong on display. And then I go forward from there and say, so if we're really looking at the best interest, which is one of the exemptions to the Free Willy Bill that was passed into law in Canada in June 2019, are we really acting in Helen's best interest? Or are we looking at her as a commodity, a piece of property to make money now for an aquarium in the state? What is the actual law then, and and how would it be legal to transfer Helen from Canada to the U.S.? So um, Bill S-203, as I was just saying, the Free Willy Bill, Uh, says it's an offense to keep captive, breed, import, or export a whale, dolphin, or porpoise. But there are exemptions. And and as you know, Jill, we only have two places in Canada that have animals in captivity right now, marine um, animals in captivity, and that's Vancouver and um, Niagara Falls' marine land. Um, So a permit is required to import or export cetaceans. And as I say, there are the two exemptions to ban... um, on import and export, and that is the first is for scientific research, and the second is the best interests of the animal. Um, So our Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans issues a permit. This is my understanding of the process. They issue a permit, um, and I don't believe there's been any public input. So for this this letter to come about, um, it's from the Americans. That's, I was, that's where this letter comes from. It's from the American permit application, which has, uh, has a, a scope for public um, feedback, whereas ours doesn't in in Canada. So it just says that she could be, um, the the letter says that it's about an import of one 
Pacific white-sided dolphin from Vancouver Aquarium in Canada to SeaWorld of Texas for the purpose of public display. That is in black and white. And that's, but that's August 2019. So is there any chance things have changed since then? I don't think so. I think this is part of the application process. And the application, as I understand it, just closed out this week. Um, and again, that's, that's from the, that, I, I got that from the American documentation. Um, so, so I'm really concerned with the shipping process. And I'm concerned with um, the purpose of why she's going down there. And I really think if there's any chance she could have a better time at the Whale Sanctuary Project in Halifax on the east coast of Canada, I think that would be a lot better place for her to retire. Well, we'll continue following this and seeing what happens at the aquarium and specifically with Helen. Uh, But Victoria, thanks for bringing it to our attention and thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Always, Jill. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being with us. Well, the comments often online and on social media when people are caught reselling things like medical masks and such, the comments are of, uh, well, there are things that we can't actually repeat on the air. People get angry when they see others taking advantage and trying to make money off things like medical masks and sanitizer. Well, the Delta Police Department has actually seized thousands of medical grade masks. And joining me to talk about that is the chief of the Delta Police Department, Chief Neil Dubord. Chief, thanks so much for being with us today. Good afternoon, Jill. Pleasure to be here. So this is another uh, seizure from people who were trying to sell these masks online. How many medical grade masks do you do you know of or that have Delta Police actually seized? So our first seizure that was about a week ago now was for 5,000 and this seizure was for just over 4,000. So it's just slightly over 9,000 total now. And these are masks that are what, posted on Craigslist or places like that? They are. So they're people that are using sort of online to be able to sell their, the product. And, and the people that we're looking at are, are the people that are selling just more than sort of one or two. These are people that are distributing large volumes of, of masks. And do officers then pose as buyers and then go meet with the people? They do. So we have a, an undercover online operator that then uh, poses as, as a potential buyer and asks to buy a certain number of masks. And um, um, a meeting is set up at that particular time and they meet. And, and if the transaction takes place, they're able to then pursue uh, you know, a charge under the, our business bylaw. And what happens to the people selling the masks? So on March the 26th, there was the Emergency Services Act that came in from the province, and that prohibited the secondary selling of PPE. Based on that, our officers did some research and some background work and found that, you know, anyone that's selling sort of and distributing large quantities of masks would be violating under our municipal bylaw, the Delta Municipal Bylaw, for operating without a business license. So what happens is we seize the masks for, for evidence. Uh, in this second case here, I can talk about the first case where we gave them back to Fraser Health but we seize the masks and then we actually give them a $500 infraction ticket that they must then defend themselves against. And that's the, and how many people are we talking about? Is it one person that's selling this or do your officers show up and it's a bunch of people? Usually it's, it's more than one. On, over these 9,000 masks, it's been four people in total. And so they get the $500 fine each? Uh, so they each get a $500 fine, correct? And that is for operating without a business license. And then they have some avenues to be able to uh, defend themselves against that infraction ticket. And so they would be defending themselves. Is it more so because of the, the public order, because we're talking about this in the pandemic? Is it is it more serious than, and not that operating without a business license isn't serious, but is it more serious in this case because of what's going on? 
you know, that brings up the point of sort of where we began this conversation is, is that it is just a $500 fine and often on social media, people are asking for much more significant consequences for these kinds of violations just because it's, it's untasteful to have taken advantage of people who may need the masks and then trying to resell them for a profit. But uh, there is just the $500 fine and that's sort of the maximum we can go at this particular time. And I, there would be no reduction of that fine at all if they're found to be guilty of, of the infraction. And and you mentioned the first batch was given to Fraser Health. Will that happen to the latest ones that were seized as well? So what happened with the first batch is that uh, the person that we took them from and issued the bylaw ticket to relinquish the masks, and we were able to immediately give them over to Fraser Health for distribution through their system. This, these masks, the second uh, batch of 4,000, we're going to have to keep until we see whether or not there is a guilty verdict on, on this particular infraction. And then once that happens, we'll be looking at how we dispose of them. And where did they get the masks? You know, these ones appeared just because of the writings on the box. If you can imagine, there were cases of these masks within the car and they were all packaged, you know, like they were ready to be sold in stores. Uh, they all had sort of what I would perceive to be Asian writing on it. So I suspect they come from overseas. And people are buying them, whether they're buying them online or, or I guess we don't know exactly where they're getting them? You know, often they may have some sort of contact back in another country that would allow them to be able to have them shipped to them. And, you know, typically it comes from a relationship that's been already set up. Do you get the sense that people, when people are caught doing this, they understand why it is police are shifting their focus, are posing as buyers and shutting this down? You know, I, I truly believe that the, they're just taking advantage of people in this time of certainly high anxiety and unprecedented times that we're seeing. So I, I really don't think they have much conscience on, on what they're doing. But I can certainly tell you that our officers feel a sense of pride and, and certainly satisfying for them to be able to help out in that small way, uh, whichever way they can, to enforce the Emergency Services Act and the prohibited selling of secondary PPE. And is that a tactic, the, the posing as buyers for something on, on Craigslist that somebody wouldn't have a business license? Is that a tactic that Delta Police would do under normal circumstances or is that changed because of the pandemic? No, it's changed because of the pandemic. Typically, we wouldn't go that far. And, and it changed because of the Emergency Services Act as well and the, the prohibited selling of, of that PPE. But it wouldn't be something we would typically do. You know, usually those officers are, are more involved into, we call them our crime reduction unit officers, and they're more involved into the illegal drug sales and, and other types of online crimes rather than just PPE. Because I think when we're talking about this, especially when we see such support for frontline workers, including healthcare workers, people do get invested perhaps more in these types of stories than other crime. Not that other crime isn't bad as well. But is there the concern that officers are, are, are involved in entrapment here, posing as buyers? No, we don't see that as, as an issue at all. We, you know, give all kinds of opportunities. We build a case just like we would in any other investigation, and it's all well substantiated and documented through. And, and that person does obviously have the right to be able to defend themselves, and they have 14 days in this particular case to be able to come forward and, and make notice that they would like to be able to, uh, you know, defend themselves, and we'll see where that goes. And are police then continuing to look for these online ads or to see if there are others that are trying to take advantage? As I mentioned sort of previously, we are looking for people that are distributing large numbers. Just to give you an idea of the one uh, seizure we did this week, they were already back online selling more. So there's no doubt that they had more supply than what we were able to receive as well. 
so uh, you know we're looking for those num- those people that are selling significant quantities and and certainly with complete disregard for the emergency services act restrictions uh, is it a crime to for somebody to purchase these masks to say if somebody just a member of the public showed up and wanted to buy them all or to buy hundreds of them it, w- it wouldn't be a crime for someone else to be able to show up and from the public and be able to buy them. No, that you know, if someone wanted to buy for an industrial workshop and they wanted to pay that price, that certainly wouldn't be. We wouldn't look at that person purchasing the mask for any kind of offense. And are you concerned at all that people, uh, just members of the public, who are outraged by this, might also be going online to find out who these people are and, and perhaps not taking the law into their own hands, but doing this to to try and give them a piece of their mind? We certainly wouldn't encourage that. We, we, you know, we are looking for people that are looking at, at selling those large quantities and we're trying to target the right people because there are, I, I'm going to suggest many ads on there selling, you know, maybe 10 uh, personal protective equipment, but we're, we're looking for people that are selling more. So I would not encourage people to take this into their own hands. Well, a couple of days ago, we were talking about break-and-enters. We were talking about Vancouver police making 40 arrests as looting was taking place with many shops closed and boarded up. And we got a call from a listener who is in charge of a company called Robber Stoppers. And we ran out of time. We couldn't finish the conversation, so we invited him to come back on the show. And John Layburn with Robber Stoppers is with us again. John, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, you were just about to tell us a story. You had said that business was booming, that you've been a company uh, in business since 1997. As the name would imply, you help uh, bring in security, whether it's doors, windows, barricades, uh, on all types of businesses and homes. Uh, What has business been like for you? Well, I mean, over the years, it's been a gradual, steady increase. But uh, since the the COVID-19 shutdown, uh, we've seen a lot more calls, like a huge increase in the amount of calls from the, what I call the service industry businesses. Uh, you know, in the last week and a half, I mean, we've done three Subway stores, a Freshie restaurant, uh, three dental offices, nail salons. Uh, there was an aesthetic uh, medical office in uh, Vancouver, and they had actually had break-in, and they actually put signs on the windows that says, we have no masks, gloves, or alcohol on the premises. So, you know, I guess people were breaking in to look for, you know, for these gloves and masks. Uh, bakeries, uh, there's a manufacturer in Langley that uh, uh, manufactured hand sanitizer. Uh, they've been broken into. Shoe and orthotics stores, we've shipped six gates up to the Legion in Terrace. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. Uh, one that uh, touched me was an outdoor supply store in Surrey uh, that had three break-ins in just over two weeks. And after the last break-in, she says, you know what? She says the products they stole were up on Craigslist within three hours. Hmm. So, you know, that's not a, that's not a typical, you know, a, you know a, a drug-addicted person that's breaking in to, you know, make enough money for their next, you know, fix. This is somebody that's got the resources to, uh, you know, to have a computer and Internet and put ads on Craigslist. And they're, they're looking for money. They're looking to, you know, to take advantage. Take advantage. Uh, but we've even had some of our existing customers that have their perimeters uh, fully secured that are now uh, an e-bike store in Vancouver that's uh, caged in all of their inventory in their stockroom. Uh, same with a, uh, a computer supplier in Burnaby that has caged off all their pallet racking to, uh, you know, so if somebody gets through that outer perimeter, then their inventory is protected. Uh, we just had a, yesterday we had did a uh, job for a plumbing wholesaler in Surrey that had a drive-through. Uh, very difficult to uh, to stop, uh, but somebody drove through the doors of their showroom and 
you know, go and help themselves. So we're just seeing this huge increase. It, uh, it's, it, it's a bit of a surprise. I mean, when we go out, when we get a call from a customer, we go out, we have N95 masks, we have gloves. Uh, the N95 masks we use in our shop uh, on an ongoing basis. So we have a small supply of them, but we make sure that we go out and we're protecting the customers as well as ourselves. Right, because you have to think about that now too. You're doing your job, but you're doing it with having to distance and having to make sure you're safe and the people that have hired you are safe. Exactly. Yeah, that uh, our installers when they go out, uh, you know, I just make sure that uh, you know if we're doing a business, just you know that you know clear everyone away from the area that we're working in. If it's a residence, uh, we just did a uh, uh, an RCMP officer's home in uh, in North Vancouver, uh, the townhouse complex he lives in had two break-ins. Uh, so we did all of his basement windows in his townhome. But, uh, you know, we just asked him just, you know, if you could just remain upstairs, we'll let you know when we're done. You can come downstairs, inspect the work, and we'll carry on from there. Do you find that people call you before they've had a break-in? Or I'm guessing now maybe in anticipation, but do they do it to, to, to be proactive? Our, our normal business is that. I mean, when we first started, it was a reactionary uh, thing. Somebody had a break-in, then they phoned us. But as time went on, it was more of a precautionary thing. Uh, people actually put physical security, as they would an alarm system or cameras, into their budget if they're doing a new store. Uh, but that business has dropped off. I mean, there's not a lot of contractors that are working right now. Right. What advice? So now it is now it's now it's a reactionary thing. Right. What advice do you give? Because even looking in downtown Vancouver, and, and I'm sure you're seeing it everywhere as well. People are boarding up their stores, like you said. Even putting a sign saying "There's nothing in here" uh, doesn't stop uh, the robbers. Doesn't stop these thieves from 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 entering the premises. I, I mean, I guess doing what what your company does would be the best advice if somebody truly wants to keep people out. Well, it is. I mean, you know, we, we'd like to uh, tell our customers to, you know, take a layered approach. Yes, you do have to have an alarm system. The alarm system creates a sense of urgency that if somebody breaks in, they do have a limited amount of time. But it's not going to stop somebody from coming in. So if you put a gate behind your door, if they pry your door open, the alarm has been activated, then they've got a second barrier that they have to get through. Uh, Cameras, all you're going to do is see a, a, a picture, might be a good image of somebody leaving with your stuff. Right. I've done a few stories in TV. It's great footage, but yeah, it's exactly yes. what it is. It's uh, the thieves getting yeah. away with it before anybody yeah. arrives. Yeah. Uh, and and what the, the police response times are, are the same. I mean, it's, you know, 15 to 20 minutes following the alarm call coming into them and being verified. Right. And so, then, yeah, you know, which is a big window of time. It is. It is. I mean, most break and enters are in and out within three to five minutes. Uh, we're almost out of time, John. Where can people yes. find you or get in touch with you if they want to get more information? Oh, they can get in touch with us. Our, our phone number is 604-501-1288. Uh, we're happy to come out and consult with people. Uh, you know, quotes are free. And uh, right now we're anywhere from five to six days for uh, turnaround for uh, commercial business. So if somebody places an order today, we've got it filled and installed within five days. All right. Sounds good. Uh, John, thanks for calling in and thanks for coming back to talk to us a little bit more. Awesome. Thank you. All right. That is John Layburn with Robber Stoppers Security Products. You can also check them out online. Their website, robberstoppers.com, just the way it sounds. 
Well, the World Health Organization has been accused by some of mishandling, you could say, the coronavirus pandemic. Why is that accusation? Why are they being made? Well, Sam Cooper, who is a global news investigative journalist, has taken a look at this, has written about this, and he joins us on the line now. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I think a lot of people started paying even more attention uh, when Donald Trump uh, decided that the United States was no longer going to be uh, be um, funding the World Health Organization or wanted to cut funding. Uh, he didn't cite sources, as you've talked about in your piece, uh, but his allegations that uh, the WHO failed to respond to information about uh, this virus. Uh, why do you think or what have you found out uh, as far as accusations that uh, the, the organization didn't do a good job of handling? this? Well, first of all, you're exactly right that uh, President uh, Trump put this on. Uh, he really he, he seemed to have politicized the issue and, of course, made this front page news to pull funding right in the middle of a pandemic. But the facts are that uh, a lot of analysts and investigators for the past couple of months have been looking very closely at how the WHO responded. And there's really been, I would say, broad criticism uh, from a number of uh, people around the world that have pointed to uh, reporting that came out of China very early uh, January, February. We now have a pretty broad consensus that it looks like they were concealing the, uh, the, you know, the, the breadth of this pandemic risk and the infectiousness. And so uh, the WHO on January 14th, for example, tweeted that uh, preliminary investigations in China show uh, no evidence, no, uh, no evidence that human to human transmission is occurring. That's a that's a very important warning, because if they had said something stronger, such as uh, transmissions were occurring in the community, then other nations might have taken stronger measures at their borders. We've now learned that at the same time, allegedly January 14th, the, the Chinese Communist Party at high levels was acknowledging serious pandemic risk and that evidence did point to human to human transmissions. So that's one of the points that uh, critics are, are, are asking, where was the WHO on that early on the reporting coming out of China? Because they do have a mandate to independently verify uh, the reporting coming out of uh, the countries where the disease is occurring. Another just one point is uh, a pandemic wasn't declared until March 11th. And by that time, as we know now, uh, the, the disease had spread very widely around the world. There was really no chance to contain it at its source anymore. And has there been any response from the WHO to these allegations? So far, the WHO has said, first of all, they're, they're disappointed with President Trump's uh, action. And I think uh, a lot of people around the world are disappointed. At the same time, uh, a lot of people are saying the WHO does need to be examined here. I, I, saw, I saw a tweet today from two former ambassadors, uh, from, uh, Canadian ambassadors in China, that said, let's basically separate the, the political fog from the facts. We do need to look at what happened here. The WHO, it, to my questions, they did not respond directly, but they were uh, they wanted to note that they took the action to, to declare a global health emergency on January 30th, and that is the highest alarm they can they can sound short of calling a pandemic. Uh, is the the allegation or the insinuation then that the WHO uh, kind of kind of uh, 
is reluctant to do anything that is negative uh, towards China. And you've touched on this in the piece as well, in that Taiwan has responded to the coronavirus in a way they have very few deaths. They got a hold of the infection rates. They kept them down in that country. Taiwan's not a part of the WHO. It's not a part of the UN. Uh, is, is the insinuation there as well that the WHO just doesn't want to ruffle feathers with China? That's absolutely what the critics are pointing to. And I, I think they have a fair amount of evidence that, that would say certainly Taiwan uh, early in January put up very strong travel bans at their borders. Uh, they, were, they were making quarantines, quarantines and health checks essential at airports. And on the other hand, uh, the WHO has still not, has basically said it's not right uh, to boil it down, to block borders. Uh, the, the disease knows no borders. Part of their mission is to make sure that uh, countries aren't economically harmed or trade isn't hurt and that uh, no discrimination occurs. But the critics would say that the countries that uh, relied on their own uh, intelligence and their own assessments of the risk that was coming out of China uh, that wasn't publicly being uh, reported from China those countries have fared much, much better. Taiwan uh, only has something like 400 cases. This is a country of 23 million right beside mainland China with many links. So certainly the critics are pointing to Taiwan. And they're also saying in Canada, is, is, has Canada's government sort of blindly followed WHO's guidelines uh, to, you know, to the T? And uh, our health minister, the Canadian health minister, Patty Haidu, she has been asked about this and and doesn't go there. She hasn't gone there at all. Uh, uh, the federal government, uh, it's fair to say they've held the line. They are saying that the WHO has done what they're supposed to do, and that is respond with scientific evidence. But uh, there's another argument here. Uh, you know, experts in, in pandemics, in viral spread say, if you're waiting uh, to stop, you know, the disease in its track, you're being too slow. You have to be aggressive. And so I think, uh, you know, we've certainly seen um, a lot of members from the Conservative Party in Canada are saying that, it, you know, at this point, the evidence is the WHO moved too slow. They were not recommending the use of masks early. They were not recommending travel bans. And countries, again, that took up those measures have done a lot better. And this isn't just a partisan, uh, you know, criticism either. We had a former Liberal Justice, Min Justice Minister, Erwin Kotler, the other day sent out a letter saying that this virus, uh, China has to take a lot of the blame and the WHO has been moving very closely with China. And I mean, and that's like you said, it's not partisan. If you look at what how countries have responded and the countries that went on their own and did those things, you're absolutely right. They they have fewer cases. They have they have been able to slow this down much much faster. Uh, what do you learn from this, or what do we take from this? Then then, as we are in the middle of this pandemic, we're still not on the other side of it. So what do what do you think happens next? As far as do we have more criticism of the WHO or more fallout? I suppose from what the United States has done. I'm pretty, uh, it's already known that the, the United States will, they say, they have suspended their funding until they examine the WHO's role in this. I'm hearing already from sources in Canada that uh, we can expect hearings, uh, whether it's in health committees or, 
or uh, p- other parliamentary actions about the WHO's actions, about uh, Canada's response or relationships with the WHO, and about China's reporting. I think we'll see a, a lot of countries around the world ask these questions, but what happens next, we're still very much... I know people want to uh, make a judgment whether the curve has been flattened. Certainly, uh, the incidences of of spread have slowed down in Canada and much of the world. But I think uh, it's too for a lot of people. It's too soon to uh, to look for blame. This is still very much about uh, stopping the disease and saving lives. All right, so we will leave it there. Sam Cooper, thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon in this half hour. Coming up in this half hour, we're going to open up the phones. We want to hear from you if you are still commuting to work and if you are, how you are doing that. But right now we are going to check in with Gavin McGarrigal. He is the Western Regional Director with Unifor. And we want to talk about what the situation is like on transit buses. Gavin, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, I know some drivers have raised concerns saying uh, uh, social distancing or that physical distancing is very difficult, even with the measures that have been taken and with the shields that have been put in several of the buses. Uh, What are conditions like right now for the bus drivers? Well, we've been continuously working with Coast Mountain Bus Company on a daily basis to try to deal with the concerns as they come up. And, and, uh, you know, we've seen movements toward... um, uh, you know, uh, rear door boarding. We've seen movements toward uh, notices on uh, on buses. But what we haven't seen is we we've seen two messages that simultaneously don't make sense. On the one hand, uh, we've seen uh, um, talks of uh, massive cuts in the transit system, uh, but yet how important the transit system is to uh, to essential workers trying to get to their jobs uh, and and people who have mobility issues, etc. Uh, but on the other hand, um, uh, there's there's no uh, no extra staff to help enforce the social distancing. So sure, you can go to rear door boarding and you can put notices on, on the seats, but what happens is is when the buses are going by and they're a third full because they have to be a third full, uh, people who are lining up seeing buses pass them by are getting into arguments at the stops as to who's first. And then when they get onto the bus, the bus drivers by themselves and they don't have anyone at the back of the bus to make sure that people follow those guidelines. So the, the notices are being torn off seats People are moving around in areas where they shouldn't be. Um, And in this context, the notion of talking about laying off even one transit worker uh, makes no sense at all. And so we don't know where the various levels of government are at on this. And uh, obviously our members are concerned about that, as they have every right to be. Uh, To talk about the distancing on the bus, even with the the seat closures, and like you said, we've seen reports of people moving them and, and shifting them around. Even with the seats closed, it's still not two meters. It's impossible to get that kind of distance with people on the buses. Well, if you have, as, as I said, if you have some enforcement mechanisms, if you have, you know, it could be an extra driver sitting there or someone, or it could be security. It could be, uh, you know, the, the reality is is we simply uh, can't necessarily go to a complete shutdown of the transit system. There are, uh, I think that the total is at least 75,000 essential workers a day that need that service to get there. So, you know, we need all hands on deck. Uh, we need, uh, you know, if anything, more people in there to make sure that those social distancing guidelines uh, can be 
can be met. Um, you know, it, it does mean that buses will be running around uh, mostly empty, but it's uh, it's something that is absolutely needed right now. And uh, again, we appreciate, you know, as I said, we've been working with management on that. Uh, but right now, when we start to see the the political bun fight between the federal government, the provincial government, and TransLink uh, talking about potential layoffs, uh, as high as 30, 40, even 70 percent, uh, it's, it's just ridiculous. And, uh, you know, we need the public to speak out and say, do a better job in, uh, in taking care of this important service. Uh, has there been a reduction in service or any reduction in, in staff hours at this point? There's been some limited attempts to reduce service a little bit. I think uh, we saw the impact of that is that as soon as they went down a little bit in service that, uh, you know, what was uh, seeming to work in terms of social distancing uh, for the most part was then uh, as soon as they, they made some service tweaks, all of a sudden, um, you know, we started to have problems again. So uh, that's the point is you need all the buses that you can out there. Some of the buses don't, uh, you know, don't have, uh, it's not as easy to to uh, do the social distancing so some of those I understand have been pulled off the road uh, but you really need um, to make sure that you do have maximum service so that each bus can be as empty as possible so that the drivers on the bus are safe and the people on the bus are safe and that we can run the system. Cutting it back only means more people trying to get onto less buses which means that that could lead to a complete system shutdown. Are you surprised that so many people are still using the bus in that we're hearing from drivers asking people don't get on the bus if you don't need to. Uh, people are being told to stay at home if they can. Uh, the parking in Vancouver, if you're commuting to Vancouver and you have a vehicle, the parking is free. Are you surprised at how busy they still are? No, not really. Um, you know, we know that uh, that uh, so many people just simply don't have the options of, uh, of a car. Uh, of getting around that way and um, you know there are concerns obviously of people taking unnecessary trips and our, our message to everyone which is I think in line with what everyone is saying is if you don't need to travel if you don't need to go out please don't go out whether it's by bus by car or, or any other method you know stay home and stay safe but people you know there's lots of essential service workers grocery store workers um, you know uh, healthcare workers um, you know energy workers um, yeah, forestry workers who are making things like toilet paper you know there are people who who simply don't have the options uh, of getting of getting around, or maybe they've had to, you know, take uh, take off that. I mean, we see uh, ICBC talking about potentially ways for people to deregister that second car. Well, how can you, on the one hand, make it easier for people to deregister a second car, and then on the other hand, talk about cutting back on transit service? How are people going to get around? You've seen probably Jill some uh, horrific pictures in the states of people lining up uh, to go to food banks in the cars that are hundreds and hundreds of, of lines long. But what about those people that don't have the cars and can't get that service. So I'm not surprised that there's a need. I'm not surprised that there's some people that aren't following the guidelines, but I think for the most part, you know, we've, we have seen a significant reduction in passenger volumes. Um, so that, that's good news. Um, you know, there's always going to be some people out there that don't, uh, don't do what, what is necessary, but uh, cutting service is just going to be the complete wrong way to go because that's just going to make every problem that much worse. TransLink is saying that, uh, you know, they get their fare, their revenues from fares, which on the buses right now, uh, people are rearboarding and not paying. Uh, they get their revenues from the gas tax, which is down from all of these places that they make their money, it's down. And that's why I think we heard Jonathan Cote say, when we get back up and running, if nothing changes, if they don't get funding, that it's going to be a transit system that people won't recognize. What can 
what can drivers do? I, I mean, other places, City of Vancouver today has said that staff there has to take one day unpaid a month until December. Other places have gone down to 75% wages. Is there any movement there as far as union members being part of the solution? Well, I think you have to, to parse it into the different jobs that people are doing, right? I mean, if you're talking about, you know, cities and municipalities and, and provincial governments, maybe there are some areas that... Um, you know, that they can figure out uh, different methods of service delivery which allow them to have those discussions. In this particular case, it's a straightforward line. If you reduce the amount of uh, skilled tradespeople, then you have less buses on the road. If you take buses off the road, it means the social distancing guidelines are harder to follow and that, uh, you know, there's overcrowding, which could lead to even more drivers uh, saying, we're not putting up with this. Uh, They have an individual right to refuse unsafe work and and they certainly uh, uh, have training on, on how how to do that if they need to. So, you know, it, it really depends on the specific nuance of the job. And in this particular case, um, you know, there are essential workers out there that have to get to work. There is a transit system that has to function. And uh, we just don't simply see any, uh, any ability to really, uh, to really cut without uh, putting either our members at, at further risk or, or members of the public, uh, you know, many of whom are essential services at risk as well. So, um, you know, it depends on the specific job, depends on, on how things go. I mean, but generally speaking, I would say if we're seeing all this devastation in the private sector, um, it doesn't make any sense to to add to it by cutting public sector. The reality is every jurisdiction, every municipality, every province, every country, and even internationally is going to have to grapple with the financial outcomes of this in terms of the subsidies, in terms of what it means to budgets and all of these things. So everybody is suffering. Uh, and nobody knows the answers because this is unprecedented. But we are not going to be a guinea pig for this um, creature that is TransLink, which is funded from all these different levels. And somehow that somehow we should be the the social experiment of, hey, what is it like if we cut down transit in a major city? When you look down at the United States, they've put subsidies in for this kind of thing uh, in many in many areas. You look at areas like Toronto. Um, I haven't seen anything about them talking about cutting services. We've heard nothing from BC Transit about cutting service. In fact, the only place we've heard this from is TransLink, and not even necessarily blaming TransLink for it. It's the unique way that this particular system is funded. But uh, this isn't a social experiment. These are real people. People need to get to work. Drivers need to be safe. Passengers need to be safe. And the levels of government need to sort this out yesterday. So how are they supposed to pay the drivers if TransLink says it's not making any money? Well, the federal and government have to step in. They have to figure out a way to make sure that they have the emergency funding needed to get through this. And, you know, I mean, it's it's the same question of people can say, well, how can you afford to send $2,000 checks to, you know, everyone under the CERB? Or how can you afford to do the wage subsidy? I mean, this isn't something where we're talking about uh, normal financial times. These are completely extraordinary, unprecedented times. The province has recognized that in many, many areas. And in many areas, the province is doing uh, better, I would argue, um, than many other provinces uh, in terms of some of the, the, uh, the, the measures that they've taken. So this one, we want to make sure it doesn't fall through the cracks. Uh, you know, we are in touch with uh, provincial officials and, uh, and with Transing and Coast Mountain, and we're making the same point to all of them is, um, you know, we don't want to necessarily get in the middle of those discussions. Um, they just need to sort it out and realize that this service cannot be reduced during this time. All right, Gavin, we'll leave it there. Thanks for making time for us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again, Jill.
Thanks for being with us. So we talked about this earlier on in the program, news that the Vancouver Aquarium is losing millions. And without financial help, the facility could close permanently within a couple of months. So let's bring in Martin Helena. He is the head veterinarian at the Vancouver Aquarium and OceanWise, and he joins us on the line now. Martin, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, it's uh, pretty shocking news to a lot of people, although we're seeing many, many places that are losing millions and it's unprecedented times. Uh, what are your concerns or what's your reaction to this uh, this news? Well, certainly it, it, it's very concerning. Um, as you say, not altogether surprising. We, as in any other business and, and nonprofits included, rely on people coming in and supporting us and paying their ticket. And, and that's how we run. Um, by and large. So without that coming in, um, well, we have no other income, really. Uh, I would imagine even with the aquarium being shuttered on March 17th, that you've still been working, haven't you, as the head veterinarian? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, certainly we've modified our, our day-to-day a little bit. We've split our veterinary team as well as our animal care teams into two distinct groups, um, and none shall meet the other, as it were, unless there's an emergency. Um, and uh, yeah, just trying to limit contact with each other. And, and also if one team does get sick, we've got a backup team. So, um, yeah, but um, by and large, it's it's mostly business as usual and, and animal care goes on without a doubt. Uh, so if this actually happens, if the aquarium is forced to close permanently, what happens to the 70,000 animals that uh, call the aquarium home? Well, I don't think anyone knows that for sure. Um, certainly the priority here is, to keep them here where it's, you know, absolutely the best place for them. Um, uh, you know, I, I assume we would try and find homes elsewhere, but, um, you know, moving animals and that sort of thing during this period of time wouldn't be all that easy either. So I think the focus here really is um, keep our animal care as, as, as optimal as possible and let's work hard together and, and figure this mess out. Uh, are there any plans uh, to do any kind of programs? Like you said, the aquarium relies on the entrance fees and donations and such from people to keep going. Are there any plans? I mean, could it be something creative, like somebody virtually adopts an animal and feeds it for a month or or, or does something oh, else? Oh, yeah, you, you, yeah, you betcha. And, and, you know, those kinds of ideas are really great. Uh, you know, certainly we anticipate, even if, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, the current COVID situation starts to relax a little bit, it's not going to be a free-for-all, you know, the next morning. Um, so there'll be, like, you know, staged kind of uh, um, sort of processes to get us back to normal. So, you know, limiting the number of people that might come in. Uh, certainly lots of online ideas, virtual um, ideas, uh, virtual tours, perhaps, um, and, you uh, yeah, no, I, you know, that's the exciting part about working with some really great people. Um, and we've been through a few challenges over the years. Um, certainly, this might be a bigger one than most, but um, um, people are great. And the people I work with are, are absolutely amazing. And our community is amazing. And it's it's Vancouver, it's BC, it's Canada. We can We can do this, right? We can get through this. It seems to have reignited the uh, conversation about having aquariums, having animals on display for people to pay and to come in and watch. Uh, there have been a few comments uh, to to the stories that we've posted with people saying, uh, "This is it's the time has come to stop doing this." So, what, how do you respond to that? Um, well, I, I you know I. <laughs> I think those people are going to say that no matter what news you bring out with. I kind of put them in the same group as anti-vaxxers and the 
anti-COVIDians that are gathering on streets to protest uh, social uh, isolation. So, yeah, I, I disregard those uh, those comments altogether. Uh, we talked to uh, an animal lawyer earlier today, and we planned to talk to her anyway before this news uh, had, had broken. Uh, she's concerned about Helen, the lone dolphin still at the aquarium, and, and plans to perhaps move Helen to SeaWorld in San Antonio. Is that where Helen is going? Um, those are the plans currently. Um, certainly when um, she was our, our last cetacean and when the rulings came down that we could no longer have cetaceans inside Stanley Park, um, the, the call went out to find the most appropriate home for her. And right now that stands as the most appropriate home. Um, certainly that's a very long process with, with lots of uh, um, permits being required on both sides of the border. And as you can probably imagine, everything's at a total standstill now. Right. Are there any concerns, though, with Helen at her age and stage in life being sent to a facility where she would be put on display? Um, You know, I I think there's some risk to moving an animal um, for sure. Um, That can can, you know, folks folks do this and and there's some really great people that do this. So so that can be definitely minimized. Um, certainly as, as an animal ages, there are some, uh, you know, more concerns. Um, Helen, as an individual, has kind of a poor history with, with transport. She had a bit of a difficult time. Um, this was before my time, so just going to over, over the record, so she's not an ideal. Um, however, um, you know, we, we, we're not allowed to have her at, at the aquarium, so we do have to figure out something for her. Right. It just seems like even that an, an animal that has a poor history with transport, sending that animal to Texas doesn't seem like the best option. Um, I think, you know, for her long-term welfare, it's either a matter of being, uh, you know, having more animals brought in here for her to be with or sending her out. So, um, you know, our options right now are, are, are you know, legally um, limited. So, so this is what we've got. Uh, so, I mean, people would take offense, I think, to being lumped in with the same group as anti-vaxxers, with people with the argument being, why is it okay to have some animals on display, but say, draw the line at cetaceans, and it's no longer okay to have cetaceans? Um, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's weird to, to draw that line. But isn't that the line the aquarium has drawn, and that it won't be having cetaceans, but it will still have other animals? Yeah, I, I do believe that that was kind of uh, forced upon us by, by regulators. Because would it, would it work in a scenario, and I mean, we are in this strange time with this pandemic, moving forward to make it more, and I know it does a lot of research, but to make it solely based on research or to do it in a way that animals aren't in cages and aren't in display cases? Um, so I, I, I apologize. You're asking whether we should sort of do what now? Well, if the, if the line has been drawn that it no longer makes sense, it's not ethical to keep cetaceans on display for humans to come and look at them and be, be, be with them and see them up close, then why is it still okay to have other animals in display cases and in cages and humans come and look at them? Okay, uh, well, I, I suppose you're, <laughs> there's a several questions there. Um, I, you know, from my perspective, and, and again, the animals that, uh, that we have, you know, all of our sea otters are rescue animals, Helen's a rescue animal that can't be released. Um, you know, uh, we've got uh, Senko, the sea lion that was blinded by gunshot, Jessica Seal that's been blinded by gunshot. So, so we have these non-releasable animals. Um, they're living uh, great lives, uh, and they are providing 
education and 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 of course involved in our research programs as well. So I, I don't really see an issue with providing a great home to really great animals. Well, a lot of people are feeling the stress of the pandemic, the way uh, normal routines have been shaken up in many, many cases, uh, dealing with things that are very different and uh, not anticipated. A Vancouver counselling practice is offering some free COVID-19 online support groups. And joining me to talk more about that is Jennifer Hollinshead, registered clinical counsellor and founder of Peak Resilience. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. What exactly uh, is Peak Resilience offering people as far as helping people who might be having troubles right now? Well, we are very well aware that the mental health of our community was struggling before all of this. And so um, we, uh, as a as a fee-for-service practice, we wanted to figure out a sustainable way that we could give back while also still, uh, you know, paying our bills. So we thought about... Um, sort of leveraging the power of group therapy to help increase the resilience of our communities right now. So that allows us to support many people all at once. And it also, so people get more coping strategies and they're connecting to other humans who are going through the exact same struggles as as they are. So we're really finding it sort of a two birds, one stone approach. And it's it's funny when you say the phrase or the term group therapy, it's it's already just in this this time of physical distancing, the bells go off thinking, well, we can't do anything in groups, mm-hmm. but this is a, an online way or a way to people to, to, to connect, to connect exactly. in a safe way. Exactly. It's kind of like the Brady Bunch when you look at all the faces on the screen. <laughs> it's all it's all online. <laughs> so what do what do people actually what can they get out of this? The biggest theme, so we are now um, filling up our sixth group stream. So what we try and do is we try and keep the groups um, limited to 10 people so that it actually can be more of a conversation as opposed to just this huge forum with hundreds of people. Um, So people can actually connect, and they said that they do feel connected when they're in these groups. And, um, and the other thing we're focusing on is resource building right now because we kind of are getting the sense um, from government and leadership that this is probably going to last a little while and it's, it's, a, it's a huge impact to the whole entire world. So we thought that why don't we try and, and provide some support right now so that we can start building coping strategies and resilience when it hasn't necessarily gotten as as hard as it might get. Um, and, and that uh, allows us to also create relationships with, with people so that if their mental health um, declines or worsens over the next little while, they've already started group therapy and they've already connected to a service that, um, that feels sort of safe enough for them. And what do you think or what are you hearing as far as what are what are the main things that is is it anxiety that is affecting people whether you you've maybe lost part of your job all of your job is it fear what is it do you think that people are are most dealing with Yeah I think uncertainty would be the number one uh theme that we've noticed come up um and the other piece that we've noticed is there is common experiences of fear and uncertainty and stress um, but there's a lot of differences in how people are actually affected by this. Some people um, who are relatively privileged, uh, like myself, I am still working 
and I'm just working from home. So there are struggles for me, but I notice I have a lot of resources. But the people who are really, really suffering right now from unbelievable amounts of stress are the people who have lost their jobs, who can't pay their rent, who who don't necessarily have a lot of support. And it's really important that we, we recognize that everyone in this society has a different position. And unfortunately, like we need to acknowledge that there are a lot of people in poverty. There are a lot of people of color right now. There are a lot of LGBT people and people with disabilities that are, are experiencing the brunt of this even more and including frontline healthcare workers. And so that's what we wanted to provide as a, as a feminist counseling practice. We wanted to help people come together and um, sort of build their resilience during a really, really hard time. <laughs> so what can people do or how do people get involved with the, with these uh, programs or these groups? Well, they can just reach out to us. Um, our email is connect at peak-resilience.com and our website in general is peak-resilience.com and um, we have a landing page that makes it easy to navigate where the groups are. Um, but yeah, we would we would love to have anyone attend our groups, and we also presented um, all of our group information for free to um, to mental health professionals who want to echo what we're doing because we can't do this alone. We need other practices to uh, to jump on this bandwagon as well. And the group sessions themselves. Now, do people have to have Zoom? Or are they offered through that platform? Yeah, it's offered through Zoom. Yeah. So we just send the link um, and then people would have to just click that. So, yeah, they would have to have the piece of um, technology to get to Zoom. All right. And again, people can go uh, onto the website and learn more uh, about this for sure. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. I know there's been a lot of interest and I'm sure there will be a lot more for sure. Thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this today. Thank you so much, Jill, and take care. All right, you too. That is Jennifer Hollinshead, a registered clinical counsellor, also the founder, a founder of Peak Resilience. And again, you can go to their website, peak-resilience.com, and find out more about those and other resources on the website as well. Well, yesterday we were talking about takeout day. A lot of people supporting local restaurants, local businesses as we all weather through the COVID-19 pandemic. Today we're talking food, but at a bit more of an elementary level. The Canadian Federation of Agriculture is calling for increased support from Ottawa to help country this country's farmers. CKNW contributor Claire Allen was monitoring a news conference that was held earlier today. She joins me now to talk a bit more about this. Claire, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. Yes, so during a press conference this morning, the Canadian Federation of Agricultural Agriculture President Mary Robinson said that while the health and safety of Canadians during this COVID-19 pandemic should be a top priority, ensuring the country's food supply is secure should be the second. With so much uncertainty around the globe, the Canadian Federation of Agriculture is calling on the federal government to immediately also prioritize food production. We must ensure Canada's domestic food supply is secure, not only for the duration of this battle, but long into the future as well. Today, Canadian farmers need immediate, meaningful help from our federal government to continue fulfilling that responsibility. Agriculture, the foundation of our overall food supply, is, at this very moment in time, at a tipping point. 
If we do not, as a nation, address the rising challenges immediately, Canadian consumers could see a decrease in the amount and variety of food at their local grocery stores, as well as higher prices in the months ahead. So the president, Mary Robinson, added that the government has allowed temporary foreign workers to come to Canada to work, and, but they must quarantine for 14 days. And the government has taken on the cost of that quarantine. She says that those are great first steps, but more must be done. So I, I wanted to see the impact of COVID-19 on local growers here in B.C. I spoke to Glenn Lucas, who is the general manager of the B.C. Fruit Growers Association, and he says that this pandemic has had a huge impact on our local agricultural uh, industries workforce. For the Okanagan, for apple, cherry production, and also grapes as well, the issue is that the Seasonal Ag Workers Program, which is workers from Mexico and the Caribbean, supplies about 4,500 workers to the Okanagan. And in addition to that, we have about 3,000 what we call backpackers. About half of those are from Quebec, and half of them are international backpackers. So the issue this year is those 4,500 temporary foreign workers are delayed in arriving uh, because of the COVID protocols. Uh, the, the backpackers that are international will not be allowed in because they come in on visitor visas. So they uh, will be missing 1,500 people. And so, Jill, of course, that decrease in the workforce has really led to a decrease of productivity on local farms. The COVID protocols will impact Productivity, you know, people have to be spaced out further. Uh, we'll have to take extra precautions to preserve health of the workers, the farmers, and of course the spread of of, uh, of COVID in, in the community. So we want to make sure that we're as safe as we can be. That will mean extra protocols and safety protocols that will slow things down on the farm. So in essence, if we'll need more workers just because of that slowdown, but we're already short of workers and we're delayed in starting. So there's a lot of concern about how the season will progress. It's always interesting to hear that too, because every year, well, not every year, but we tend to have that debate about the workers, people who work on farms and take those jobs, and, and as they're saying, temporary foreign workers and backpackers, because historically, people haven't wanted to do that work. But I am curious if that's going to change with so many Canadians who are now out of work. And I know we don't have, we don't have time to get into all of that, but it certainly uh, is something that uh, is worth a discussion. No, you're definitely right, Jill. I hadn't really thought about that while I was interviewing him. But yeah, there are large vacancies right now um, at these farms because temporary farm workers, some are not able to uh, get into the country or to uh, work during this time because they're in quarantine. So uh, that's a really great point. Um, another thing that Glenn and I spoke about was the issue about food security. Now, we've heard these concerns since the beginning of the pandemic. And Glenn says that if nothing is done from the federal government, consumers will see a difference at the grocery store, especially when it comes to BC-grown fruit. It's unknown at this time, but if food production isn't prioritized by the federal government, I would expect to see uh, less variety because the supply will be down. There will be BC apples available, but there might be fewer of them. And the law of supply and demand would tell you that means the price will be higher. And we know that affordable food is really a concern of all Canadians, but particularly for vulnerable uh, populations that have not as much income or are more remote. And so that could impact those communities even harder than the average Canadian. 
so we really want to the government to prioritize uh, food production and treat it as a vital industry and make sure that it's number two priority. Number one is COVID-19 and the spread of COVID-19, and number two is food security. Um, another thing that Glenn actually mentioned was that last year the cherry crop was hit pretty hard because of um, the rain, the, some of the rain we had during the summer. So they're already coming off a tough year uh, in regards to last year's cherry season, and now they're concerned that you know that's going to carry on into this year. So obviously we might see, we will see less cherries, but it'll be very difficult for the for farmers as well because they already are recovering from a tough financial year. Um, Glenn told me that he hopes these issues surrounding COVID-19 will make the federal federal government and society look closer at the uh, issues surrounding our food security. I think this whole food security dilemma with COVID-19 hopefully will result in a bigger focus on the role of the farmer and farmers feel very committed and love growing food, but they've it's been very financially punishing to be in that business for, for many years. And we'd like it to move to more of a, a system like in Quebec where food producers are appreciated and supported or in Europe. So that's we're we're looking to government to address that now in the short term with COVID nineteen, but we're hoping that it will lead to a longer term improvement in our food security. So, I mean, there have been announcements from the federal government earlier this month or last month um, about, you know, aid for um, for uh, Canada's farmers. We'll see what happens now um, after this press conference was held this morning. But going back to that press conference, um, the Canadian Federation of Agricultural President Mary Robinson is, ask, is asking Canadians to contact their local MP and tell them how much they depend on the Canadian food supply. So um, that was one thing if, you, if people would like to get involved with this they can and uh, we'll see what happens because I know that the, our food supply is, is very precious especially uh, during a time like this. All right uh, sounds good Claire thank you so much for that. Thanks Jill. That is Claire Allen a CKNW contributor talking about that call again from the Canadian Federation of Agriculture calling for more support from Ottawa to help out farmers right across the country.